Well, I invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. I don't know if it's just me or not, but my fingers have not thawed out. They are still cold. Piano and you, huh? so it didn't help. There were several of us that went to a local blacksmith and learned a little bit about how to work with iron. And we took some railroad spikes and forged some knives. It was, it was interesting and it was fun. Uh, my knife didn't turn out quite as fancy as John Shoup's, but that's all right. I took me a little longer to pound mine out to make it look like a knife. But we enjoyed it and had fun with it. So if we ever do it again, you might consider it. It's something a little bit different. I thought I'd be sore today, but I'm really not. Maybe it'll catch up with me by tomorrow. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading with verse 14. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Pray with me for a moment. Father, I pray that you will make this scripture come alive in the heart of each believer today. Pray that you will Help each one of us to realize that we can be involved in your ministry. And while it may seem small and it may seem insignificant, for the lives that we do touch, it will not be small, it will not be insignificant, but it can be life-changing. And it's to that end that I preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. On May 24th, 1738, a discouraged missionary went very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London, England. And there a miracle took place. The way he put it in his journal, about a quarter before nine, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was a man by the name of John Wesley. We know him as the founder of, of Methodism. The message you heard that evening was this preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Apparently, just reading that preface. And as a few months before that, 
He had written in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but lo, who shall convert me? He realized that he didn't really know Jesus himself. And so he came back to England very discouraged. Then altars the 8th Street that night, his question was answered. And the result was a great Wesleyan revival that broke out across England and transformed that nation. The neat thing is, we have the same scriptures that we can study today. Each and every one of us has that opportunity to study God's word. And his word is still transforming people's lives just the way that it transformed the lives of Martin Luther and John Wesley. There was one scripture that stood out above all that transformed the life of uh, Luther out of a life of mere religion to a life of joy, the joy of salvation by grace through faith. That was Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. Now to that came the Protestant Reformation, the Wesleyan Revival. They were both fruits of this wonderful letter that was written by Paul and out of, in about A.D. 56 from the city of Corinth. But imagine, you and I today can study the same scriptures. We can examine them. We can see how they apply to our lives. And that, that same powerful Knowledge of God that was brought to Luther and to Wesley can be brought into our lives. The same Holy Spirit that reached them and taught them can teach us today. And you and I can have a dynamic ministry formed in our lives. A dynamic ministry doesn't need to be a big ministry. But a dynamic ministry can be a life-changing ministry. The Apostle Paul had such a dynamic ministry formed in his life. And by examining these verses this morning, I believe that we can discover some of the things out of the formation of the Apostle Paul's ministry that can lead to each one of us having a ministry of our own in the world and the community in which we live. First thing I want to say to you is that a dynamic ministry is formed out of a burden. Out of a burden. Look at verse 14. He says, I am obligated. Some translations say, I am debtor. So I am obligated, both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. He had a burden. He had a sense of debt. He felt an obligation. And it caused him to want to go to Rome and minister to the people that were there in Rome. He didn't mean specifically that he was in debt or he was obligated to them, but that he was obligated to the Lord Jesus himself. And through that obligation to the Lord Jesus, he knew that he had to share that message with them. He had been entrusted with a message that could meet the needs of all of humanity. And because he had that message, he had a responsibility to share it. He, had a he, he was responsible to those that needed to hear that message. J.P. Macbeth puts it well when he said, need is the genesis of responsibility. See, when, when there is a need and you have the ability to meet the need, then a responsibility is born in your life. Over the years, I have many times had people that have come to me as a pastor of a church, and they have said to me, 
Pastor, I sense that there is a need. And they'd start describing some, some situation that needs ministry. And, and I, I learned, at first I took those burdens on myself. And I thought it was my responsibility to meet that need. And then I came to the realization that if God was revealing that need to them, perhaps he wanted them to be the ones meeting that need. And so I changed my approach. And instead of taking it on myself, I started asking them, well, have you thought about how you might be involved in meeting that need? How you might be involved in perhaps starting a new ministry? We have different ministries within our church, but if there is a need that is being unmet, the reality is those people that are already in leadership positions, they can't be stretched too thin. And if the Lord is putting it on your heart, perhaps he is speaking to you. Macbeth goes on to say, a blessing carries a corresponding responsibility. Christian possibilities are Christian responsibilities. Responsibility is not a matter of choice, but of equipment. And God has a way of equipping us for anything that he wants us to do. He doesn't leave us hanging out there without what we need to have in order to meet that, that need that is, that is present. All people have a need of the message, the gospel message. The wise, the unwise, the learned and the unlearned, the cultured and the crude, the intellect, intellectual and the ignorant, the civilized, the uncivilized. All people have need of the gospel. It made no difference to Paul whether a man was cultured or crude. Didn't matter if they were intellectuals or if they were ignorant. He proclaimed Christ with equal passion to a runaway slave named Onesimus, and with that same passion to the proud monarch like King Agrippa. Each of us that knows the truth are debtors. We are obligated to those who do not know it. We are obligated to share that word so that they have the opportunity to accept or reject Jesus themselves. The start of a dynamic ministry actually begins with a personal knowledge of Jesus yourself. You've got to know him. And then out of that, as you look around and you see people that were in the same state that you once were, a burden forms in your life. And out of that burden, when you realize that you have the answer that can meet the needs and can, and can resolve that burden. You can't help yourself. You want to share the love of Jesus with others. Those who know the truth in Christ are obligated. They have a burden to share that truth with others. I'm afraid that many of us do not have that burden. And maybe we don't speak up because we're afraid of offending somebody. It just tells me the burden is not great enough. We need to ask God to see people without Jesus the way he sees them. So that that burden is our burden as well as his. Second thing I want to say to you this morning is that a dynamic ministry is sharing with eagerness. If you look in verse 13, he says, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. 
He was conscious of the fact that the debt was bigger than he was, that he would never be able to fully repay it, but he is ready to give us all. He is eager to pay on that debt until all of his resources are exhausted, are exhausted in his own death. Paul was not eager to die, but he was prepared to die. And he was willing and ready to expend every ounce of energy he had to share that gospel message with others. To say that Rome deserved it would be a lie, an absolute lie. Oh, she had great culture, great intellect. Her laws were the foundation of our legal system. She borrowed her art, but she appreciated it. Her military, her military system was the wonder of the world in that day as they were conquering country after country after country. And her great men are well known today through our history books. But she was so pitiful, so pitiful. She was so unfeeling. Among her ruins, the ruins of her cities, there are no hospitals, no orphanages, although many were made orphans as a result of their conquest. As one author said, Rome incarnate had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast, made more bestial by her, in, her intelligence and splendor. See, Paul knew that the Romans were powerless when it came to changing hearts. They were powerless to eliminate slavery. Over half the population were slaves. They couldn't eliminate the violence and corruption that existed. The Roman world was full of corruption and the suicide rate was extremely high. They were powerless to change the stubborn, hostile, hate, hateful hearts of men and women. The Romans couldn't do anything about that. Didn't matter how many countries they conquered, didn't matter how many laws they, pass, they passed. This is why Paul was eager to get to Rome, eager to get there that he might minister to the needs that he saw there. It was not the eagerness of a sightseer, but it was the eagerness of a soul winner. Macbeth describes this eagerness in this way. The heat of the runner, the fury of an angry man, the bursting of flames, the uncontrolled breathing of a distressed parent, all expressed Paul's overwhelming passion to preach the unsearchable riches of his grace. And this is the way that each of us who are believers ought to be living. Every Christian ought to be ready to give his all. We ought to be ready to share the message of love and forgiveness that the gospel message contains. And it ought to be shared with authority, with boldness, not with timidity. Paul didn't preach in generalities and platitudes. No, he eagerly preached with boldness. To quote John Phillips, Paul was ready to preach the gospel at Rome. When he preached at Jerusalem, the religious center of the world, he was mobbed. When he preached at Athens, the intellectual center of the world, he was mocked. When he preached at Rome, the legislative center of the world, he was martyred. He was ready for that. There was an eagerness and a boldness to share the message wherever he went, wherever. So a dynamic ministry is formed out of a burden. It is formed, first of all, out of a personal relationship with Jesus, then out of a burden, and then it is to be shared with eagerness. The final thought that I have to share with you today is that it is 
A dynamic ministry is founded in a belief. A belief. Look at verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Many Christians seem to be ashamed of the gospel. They're embarrassed to talk about eternal life. They are distressed about denouncing the devil. They are bashful about presenting the Bible as God's word. They are squeamish to speak about the Savior and sin. They are apprehensive about the accusations of the world. They are uneasy about the unkindness of the crowd. And they are concerned about the criticalness of others. Paul said, I am not ashamed. That word ashamed means to experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. It is to be embarrassed, to hesitate, to be ashamed, to be afraid, to lack courage, to stand up for something. Paul was bold in preaching the gospel message to all who would listen. And he'd preach it even to those that didn't want to listen with the hope that God's Spirit could get through to them and help them to realize just how great God's gift of salvation was. He was not ashamed. But could he have been ashamed? I believe he could have. When you think about who he was, as a Jew, he could certainly be ashamed because the Jews hated the gospel. They said it undermined the law of God. He could be ashamed as an educated man. The Greeks claimed that the gospel was nonsense and foolishness. Paul wasn't ashamed. As a Pharisee, he certainly could have been embarrassed. You know, the pagans branded Christians as atheists because they refused to recognize the Greek and Roman deities. Think about that. And they punished Christians. They punished them with execution or with the life of slavery in the labor mines. And so a religious Pharisee would find that degrading, and he'd want nothing to do with it. Paul had all of that in his background. And yet he was not ashamed. Romans 1.16 paid an important, an important role in the life of the evangelist George Whitfield. I don't know if they're even teaching about Whitfield in history classes today. I know they were when I was a kid. Not the great awakening that happened in America. And he was one of the key individuals, one of the key preachers that God used to bring it about. But he had a start in England. And one day in 1742, Whitfield was invited by a Quaker coal merchant to preach at the fair in uh, Mary Lavone Field in west, west of London. The Quaker promised to build a platform for Whitfield. 
When the evangelist and his wife arrived at the fairgrounds, the sun was already down. The crowds were wild and rowdy. Broady prize fighters challenging all comers to bare-fisted fights in the boxing rings. It was kind of like Las Vegas with an abundance of gambling and flowing liquor. Whitfield seldom displayed fear, but on that night, he was visibly nervous as he mounted the rickety little platform that had been prepared for him so that he would be elevated a little bit above the crowd. As George raised his powerful voice, people began to gather around him. The crowds at the gambling booths began to thin out toward Whitfield as he preached louder. Shortly into the sermon, George saw a small army of battered, bare-chested fighters marching straight toward him with blood and the fire of rage in their eyes. If they could grow horns, they would have had them. George's voice began to falter, but he suddenly felt a tug on his trousers. And it was his wife's, his wife Elizabeth, who said to him, George, play the man of God. Boldness shot through the vein of God's man as he firmly proclaimed without hesitation, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to all who believe. He threw out his arms in a dramatic gesture and that rickety platform nearly collapsed with him. The fighters noticed. They noticed the wobbly platform and they tried to bring it down. But a group of Christians circled around about George. He continued to preach like a man trying to stand on the deck of a tossing ship as it was so rickety. The people began to throw things at Whitfield. He was hit by a rock, a rotten egg, and manure. And yet he continued to preach on, sending forth the word of God like missiles into the mass. When this 27-year-old evangelist finished his message, he was escorted to his wagon. A man lunged at George with a sword, but it was deflected by by the cane of a friend. In spite of the pressure and harassment, Whitfield was a man of God and was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. My prayer is that we would learn from the example of Whitfield and others like him not to be ashamed of our Lord and his word. We could learn from the Apostle Paul and all that he went through and realize while we think of him as being special, The bottom line was he was a a human, just like you and I. He had his faults. He had his failings. But God used him. He was not ashamed. The Bible says we are not to be ashamed of several things. One of those is the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed of that message. It's not going to be accepted by everybody. That's a reality. Jesus was not accepted by everybody. We ought not be afraid of suffering for the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, That is why I am suffering as I am. That's Paul speaking. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. We ought not be ashamed of being called a believer, being called a Christian. An interesting little passage in Hebrews chapter 1. 11 verses 15 and 16 that says if they had been thinking of the country they had left in other words the way things used to be 
they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were a part of that Christian movement in that first century of Christianity that knew that no matter what happened in their lives, they had God's promise to them. And that passage concludes by saying, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God's prepared a place for them. What can man do to you? What can man do to you? To die is gain. A little bit of ridicule. A little bit of rejection. Our Savior experienced all of that. Paul's absolute confidence in the gospel was based on its supremacy. He knew it was far superior to any religion or philosophy that was, had ever been known on earth. I can say that same thing today. It is greater than any philosophy or religion. In the face of Greek logic, Roman law, and Hebrew light, Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That was not the boast of an ignorant man. Paul had a good education. He had broad interest. He had great intellectual power. He knew the ways of the world, but he also knew the supremacy of the gospel. Paul's confidence was also based on its sufficiency. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Power of God for salvation. John Phillips puts it this way. The world does not need a better system of education, more social reform, or new ideas in religion. It needs the gospel. The gospel message grips the mind, stabs the conscience, warms the heart, saves the soul, and sanctifies the life. It is a message that is sufficient to transform the life of any who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was also confident in the gospel because of its simplicity. That is one of the things that causes some people today to shrink away. Because it is so simple. You don't make it hard. It's a matter of simply believing. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. All who will trust. All who, who, who will put their faith in Jesus. How could it be any simpler than that? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Just trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, as your personal Lord and Savior. And He will forgive you of all your sin. He will cleanse you of unrighteousness. He will make you a child of the King. Gospel has a strong foundation. Its foundation is in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus. Paul summarizes the message beautifully in that last phrase in verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Kenneth Weiss says, For a long time Martin Luther saw only the condemning righteousness of God and hated it. When he saw that the righteousness that condemns when rejected saves when accepted the, God, the light of the gospel broke into his darkened soul. This righteousness, Paul says, is revealed in the good news of salvation. 
when that truth was comprehended by Luther, when it reached Martin Luther, it's difficult to say exactly when, but there are some that have speculated as to when it took place. In the thinking of some, he was crawling up his knees on a staircase in St. Peter's in Rome in a vain attempt to win his righteousness by works of penance. They brought him down those stairs, however, on his feet and in a hurry. It had been burned into his soul and all of Europe soon rang with the words, the just shall live by faith. I don't know about each one of you that is here today. If that gospel message has burned its way into your heart, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, have you experienced the saving power of the gospel? By faith, have you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus? You see, that is indeed the first step in forming a dynamic ministry. There are many in our world today that see needs and they try to meet those needs. And they do some good. But oh, they could do so much more if they knew the Lord Jesus in a personal way. If you know Jesus, then you have the beginning of a dynamic ministry. Let him share that ministry with you. Accept that burden, that obligation. And share his love in any way you can, with whomever you can, wherever you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your understanding of our failures. Lord, as we present ourselves before you this morning, it is with the desire to serve you, to know you more intimately, more deeply. Lord, we make ourselves available to you to minister to the needs around about us. Lead us to reach out in love to others as we pray and as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.